Uh, it's good to be with you all again this morning. Uh, as James said, my name is Luke. I'm the pastor of student ministries here. Um, so, really to start, has anyone ever thought about life in Corinth around 50 AD? Has anyone thought about that before? No? Not many takers? One hand? No one? Yeah, probably not. Really, I didn't think anyone would. I mean, in the economy of your thought lives, thinking about something seemingly so trivial as what life was like at Corinth in 50 AD, I mean, it wouldn't make it to the top of the list. I'd be surprised if it was on the list at all, honestly. I mean, I've interacted with your students. I know what the life of a junior higher is like. I know what the life of a high school student is like. And I mean, you as parents, it's enough just managing your kids' schedules. And there's enough there to keep you busy, let alone to make time to think about life in Corinth in 50 AD. I mean, there's, you know, bills that you got to pay and the mortgage and probably more pressing is food that you need to get on the table because your spouse is getting hangry and you need to calm that as quickly as possible. But this is the question that we're going to focus on this morning. We're going to look at together what life was like in Corinth. What was it like for this young new church. I mean, they were trying to figure things out. This guy, the Apostle Paul, came to Corinth around 50 AD and started planning this church, and they were trying to figure out, okay, what does it mean for us to follow Jesus, for us to follow the risen and ascended Lord, to follow his words and his ways? And that's the exact same question that we are asking together as a church. I mean, this is what we are all about. We are a people who are devoted and committed to following the words in ways of Jesus. That's what is in our DNA. That's who we are, and that's what we want to pour ourselves out for and into. And so this summer, we've been looking at some of the unheralded heroes of the faith. Some of the people that don't get all the attention. I mean, their names are in the scripture, but we don't always look to them as the prime examples of what we think it means to live faithfully. But they should. They deserve the attention. And so this morning, we're going to be looking in the book of Acts. Acts 18. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, you can open it up to Acts 18. And we're going to look at a story that really results in this one guy, Sosthenes, and how he got involved into this political drama. And Sosthenes, his name only appears twice in Scripture. Once here in Acts 18, and once at the start of a letter. As the start of the letter to the Corinthians, it he appears as a co-author with Paul. I mean, he, he wrote the letter to the Corinthians, one of the greatest letters in the New Testament that we have, speaking into the life of a local church about what it means to follow the ways of Jesus, what it means to follow the risen and ascended Lord, and Sosthenes' name is right there next to Paul as a co-author of this letter. So at the very least, this guy is worth looking at and trying to understand as much as we can about who he is. So this morning, I want to read to you this story, and then I'm just going to extrapolate this story for us. It's not a typical three-point sermon. I'm just going to really share this story with you in a longer form. And I would hope that you can imagine with me that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ at this church in Corinth. So if you're all there in your Bibles in Acts 18, uh, I'm going to read it for us, uh, and then I'll pray, and then we'll dive in. We'll start in uh, verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. 
And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, and I am innocent. For now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a manner of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Living God, we believe that uh, your Holy Spirit has inspired the apostle, uh, not the apostle, but Luke, um, to write these things down. The writer of the gospel who also wrote this book, we believe that your spirit was there inspiring this text. Now it's written down for us, for our instruction, that we may learn about you uh, and how you're moving in this world and what you're doing, that we may learn it and grow and be changed by it. So we ask just this in your loving mercy today, you would help us understand this text and apply it to our lives. For we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. That was a bit of a long passage. It's a bit of a long story, and probably many of you zoned out as I was reading it, and that's kind of to be expected as well. If we're honest, most of you are probably watching the waves. That's okay. Because there's stories like this, the way that these stories are written, sometimes it's hard to focus. I mean, they pack details in there that are essential to understanding everything that's going on. So this morning, I hope to bring these details to life a bit more. So I'd invite you to imagine that you are a disciple of this church in Corinth. And Corinth is kind of similar to the South Bay. Kind of similar. I mean, in Corinth, it's a coastal city, just like us here. And in Corinth, there's two ports. There's a port on the west side and a port on the east side. And so there's so much trade that was coming through Corinth. I mean, if you were lucky enough to make it to the top of the mountain, you could see the two harbors and all the ships that were coming in and really all the trade that was coming in with that. And you wondered what was on the ships, but you knew that someone in the middle must be making a lot of money trading these goods. And I mean, there's land routes too. There's land routes going from the north to the south. And so, I mean, at the center of all these crossroads was Corinth, and this is where, I mean, it made its living. And Corinth was an attractive city to a merchant. I mean, if you thought you could make it to Corinth and you knew how to do business well, I mean, you, you could make a good living. Similar to L.A., I imagine many of you were brought here with a similar mindset. If I take this job in L.A., and if I'm good at business and know how to run this thing, well, so I can make a good living. If you're at the top of Corinth looking down on the two harbors, you'd probably be next to the temple. 
And one of the things that Corinth was also known for was the temple to Epaphrodites. I mean, it was a huge temple. It was big and amazing and monumental, and you see it. And inside the temple were a thousand prostitutes of men and women that were involved in the rituals of worshiping. I mean, Corinth was, its reputation for sex and sexuality preceded itself all through the Mediterranean world. I mean, if you were to say, oh, they're acting like a Corinthian, I mean, they would be participating in acts of fornication. Or if you were to call a woman a Corinthian woman, it would be a derogatory term for a prostitute. Well, Corinth was, I mean, it drew in merchants. I mean, it was a city there you could make money and men could spend some of their money in the temple worship, it would draw in quite a few men trying to make it big. And Corinth, similar to L.A., was a younger city. I mean, it's been around for 75 years or so. I mean, it was destroyed and then it was rebuilt by the Romans. It was completely destroyed. The Romans saw its potential and built it up. And L.A. is really not that old of a city as well. I mean, it was recently developed, maybe 150 years ago. It's full life and its position now is one of the most important cities in the world. I mean, it hasn't always been like this. And, well, it's the same with Corinth. There's one guy in Corinth, though. His name was Gaius. Or in our text today, it's, we call him Titius Justice. That's his Greek name. And Titius Justice was one of the merchants that lived in Corinth. And I don't know when he moved there or how long he lived there if he grew up there, but, well, he was there. And we think that he was a successful merchant. He was the one probably making a living off of the trade, and he had a nice house. And we know that he had a nice house because it was at least big enough to hold all the congregation of all the people who were worshiping and following Jesus at Corinth. Indeed, he, this guy, Titius Justice, was the one who housed the Corinthian church. I mean, when people gathered to worship, they would gather at his house. And it was probably at the outside of this city because, I mean, if you were wealthy enough to own a house like that, usually you live a bit farther away where there's more land. And I don't know who his real estate agent was. I'm sure some of you here could speak into Titius Justice's residential property and its value. But one of the things about it was it was right next door to the synagogue. Yeah, the synagogue, the place where the Jews would gather to worship every single Saturday. I mean, they would come and they study the scriptures together and there would be a rabbi who would extrapolate them for them and they'd sing songs and be reminded of the Psalms and gather together. And, and this guy, Gaius, or Titius Justice, his house was right next door. And I don't know if that raises the property value of a home, some of you might know. But either way, he lived right next door. And week after week, he, he became interested in what was going on in the synagogue. And he became to believe in Yahweh, the God of Israel. He came to hear this story and he became what is known as a God-fear. I mean, he wasn't a full convert to Judaism. I mean, he didn't want to be circumcised. Uh, if you're confused at why he didn't want to be circumcised, you can go ask Bill, and he'll draw a couple diagrams in the sand and explain it to you. But he didn't want to be circumcised, but he was interested, so he was involved week after week going to the synagogue. And Well, one day this guy named Paul shows up. And Paul from Tarsus, and 
I mean, you've heard about him. His reputation precedes him. And this guy, Paul, comes in. He's preaching this message in the synagogue week after week about this guy named Jesus. Jesus from Nazareth. And Paul's sharing this message about Jesus. And it's this radical message about how he is the Messiah. I mean, the Jewish people were always waiting for this Messiah, the hope of the world, the one that was going to come and save the nation. And, and Paul was saying that, yes, indeed, this Messiah has come. Yahweh, the God of Israel, has become incarnate. And if you believe and put your faith in him, you may be saved, all of your sins forgiven. And Paul came with this message and was trying to persuade in this synagogue next to Gaius' home week after week after week. And Gaius believed. So this morning, imagine with me that you are one of the disciples who's worshiping in Gaius' home. Every single week, I mean more than once a week, you'd go up to Gaius' home for worship. And you'd break bread together, you'd eat together. That's what you did every single week, just as the Lord had commanded you. You'd break the bread and be reminded of all that Jesus has done. And you'd drink the wine and you'd have this really the celebration, this time of community and fellowship, and that's what you loved about this gathering. And week after week, you would go up to Gaius' home right next to the synagogue and, and worship. So one Sunday morning, you're on your way walking up, and you happen to bump into Paul. He's, he's coming up the road, too. And as you come next to him, you, you kind of dread this conversation a little bit because Paul is just seems like such a serious guy. You can never just talk about the surf with him or the weather. It seems like something's always serious going on with Paul. So you bump into Paul and you go, hey, Paul, how's it going? And he's like, good, good. How are you doing? And you exchange pleasantries. And then you ask Paul, well, how's the tent making business going? Because you know that's how Paul's been making his living in Corinth. I mean, he's been you know, making tents. He's been working with the leather of animals and all the merchants who are coming in need a place to stay. And so Paul's the one who's making the tents that's going to provide the space for them. And how's it going, Paul? How's that? And he's like, yeah, it's, it's good. You know, I actually just got this uh, gift that came in from our brothers and sisters in Philippi. I mean, they believe in me. And so they've given me this monetary gift that would free me up to just be able to preach and teach. And I don't have to be doing this tent making thing and I mean I, I love it but it's good that I just get to do this now like oh that's that's great I don't know what to say to you and you keep walking and I mean you've always noticed this scar that's on Paul's arm I mean it's a deep one it looks like it's I don't know where it came from or what happened so you thought well Paul what, tell me about the scar what's the story behind that what's the deal with that on your arm and he looks at you and he, uh, this is a it's a good story uh, but I'll, I'll keep it short you remember how I was in Lystra a few months ago I was a little bit longer a few months was five months ago but I was in Lystra and I, I went there it was new and I started preaching and you know the same message I was speaking to all of you guys I was sharing in this synagogue and in the city there and well, eventually the, the crowd didn't like what I was teaching. It's, it's a hard message, I know, and they didn't like it. So they turned on me, and <laughs> they picked up rocks, and they started stoning me. 
And you can see this one guy, he was angry. I saw him out the back. He picked up a sharp rock and uh, he chucked it as hard as he could right at my head. But luckily I had my head covered or my arms over my head like this. So the rock I, gave me a gash in my arm. But man, if that made it through, if the Lord didn't protect me with this, I'd, <laughs> I'd be dead for sure. And, whoa, Paul. Man, I mean, that's probably what the scars on your back are, too. No, that's, uh, I got lashed in another city. <laughs> Everywhere Paul went, I mean, the message of the gospel was causing tension. It was the radical news about the person of Jesus and his place in society and how that reorders all of our lives. And Paul's body showed the scars of this. And so you keep walking with Paul up to Gaius' home and you pass this olive tree. And this is just kind of the unspoken rule of those who worship at Gaius' house is that once you get to this olive tree, you know that you start to begin to talk in a hushed manner. And you want to quiet your voice a little bit because once you pass this olive tree, now you're within earshot of those who are at the synagogue. And tensions have been rising with those who the Jews who are worshiping at the synagogue and the Christians who are worshiping at Gaius' home. I mean, they're right next door to each other. You see the Jewish people in their anger and the snarl look on their faces or the side comments and the quick jabs every time those Christians are walking by. And so you think, oh, we better talk a bit quieter. I mean, the tensions have been rising. The Jews didn't like the message that Paul was bringing in. I mean, it's offensive. It's a stumbling block, some would say. It's, I mean, the message that Yahweh, the God of Israel, has become flesh is blasphemous to those Jews who believed. I mean, who could think such a thing that the God who created the world, who sustains it by its very word, has become incarnate, has lived and died and has risen again? I mean, this news was insane, and oh, the Jews didn't like that. And they also didn't like how well it was doing. They didn't like that seemed like the God of Israel was working in people's lives, that people were coming to him. I mean, they didn't like it when Gaius became a Christian. They didn't like it when Gaius and his whole household believed and started the church at his home right next door. And they really didn't like it when Crispus believed and became a Christian with his whole household. And Crispus, he was the ruler of this synagogue. Crispus was the one that they all looked up to. He was the one that helped teach about you know, the God of Israel and leading them out of the Exodus and everything. I mean, Crispus was the one that they looked up to. And when Crispus believed this message of Paul, I mean, it was angry. And people don't like change. And they really didn't like the day when Crispus and Gaius and all their household were baptized down in the harbor that day. Tensions were tight between the two communities. And the Jewish people worshiping at this synagogue who didn't like the change would do anything to stop it. So this day that you're walking up with Paul and you're trying to get him to talk a bit quieter, but he's, he's the leader, so you can't say anything. So you feel a bit of that social anxiety when someone's talking louder and you think they should be. And you're walking up, and all of a sudden, out of the corner of your eye, you see the rush of 20 feet coming towards you. And you turn to look, and sure enough, it's a mob of the people, and you recognize them because you pass them every day. 
They worship at the synagogue, and they're coming towards you from the left, and then you hear the footsteps of another 20 feet behind you to the right, and you tense up knowing, okay, what happened to Paul and Lystra is about to happen to us here. So you tense and get protected, and sure enough, they pass by you and just take Paul, and as quickly as the 40 feet rushed upon you, so quickly they left, and they took Paul away. And before you could really feel, oh man, I'm safe, your concern for Paul was there. What's going to happen to Paul? I mean, are they going to beat him up just like they beat him up at Lystra? Is this going to be the same situation that happens every single place that Paul goes? So as Paul was taken away, you quickly tried to follow the mob and Luckily, you caught a glimpse of Paul who was looking back at you, and and the face of Paul was not the one that you would expect. It was not fear, but comfort, assurance. It was a face that you would never expect for a situation of Paul, and it was the face that reminded you of what Paul shared about months before. You remember, Paul came in about three months ago with this vision that he had from the Lord. And he was so excited to share with the whole congregation. I was like a child at Christmas. I mean, he was just so excited to share. He said, brothers and sisters, I've had this vision. The Lord appeared to me in a dream in the night. And he said, do not be afraid and go on speaking. Go on teaching, for you will not be attacked in this city. For I have many in this city that belong to me, that are my own. And he shared this with the church, and, and we all believed, and we were all excited about this. So as Paul was being swept away, and he looked back at you, this was the look of faith. The look of belief that although Paul was now being in a united attack by the mob, he had faith that what the Lord said was true. Indeed, whatever was happening here was not going to result in the physical attack of himself, and he carried the look in his body. I mean, you've heard Paul talk about faith before. I mean, something he talks about a lot. If you have faith in Jesus, if you put your trust in Jesus, then you will be saved. Having faith in Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus who has believed in God, who lived the perfect life of faithfulness, but now you see it embodied in the flesh. Now you see it in action. This is what faith looks like. Although the circumstances of life seem like the exact opposite. Faith is believing in the words of the risen Lord. Faith is believing in the the words of the risen Lord and you see it in Paul's face. And then you're reminded of the next part of the vision that Paul shared with you that indeed there's some in this city who belong to God And this is why Paul goes on teaching, and this is what the Lord is saying. And so now you're following the mob, and you're not following with the fear of what they're going to do with Paul, but excitement about what God is doing here. Surely God is going to protect Paul, and surely God is going to fulfill his promise that there are more people who belong in the city that God is going to call to himself. So now you follow the mob instead of fear, you have faith. You're following in the faith of Paul, and so you catch up to the mob, and you tap someone on their shoulder. What are you doing? Where are you guys going? Why are you taking Paul? And he responds to you, oh, we're taking him to Gallio. Gallio, you think? What is it? 
Gallio have to do with the church at Gaius' house? What does Newsom have to do with the River Church of the South Bay? Gallio is, I mean, he's up there. He's, connect, he's the governor of the area. It's kind of a big deal. Whatever Gallio says here, I mean, it has jurisdiction everywhere in the area. Whatever Gallio pronounces over Paul, I mean, that's probably going to be true for all the Christians in the area. It's a big deal that they're taking him to Gallio. And Gallio, he was also connected. You might know Gallio's brother, Seneca. I mean, we've heard about Seneca. He's a famous philosopher, and he's well-known in the area. He's a guy who's like, uh, you know, luck is preparation meeting opportunity. He's that guy. So you, you know Gallio, and, and Seneca's brother has connections. I mean, they're both well up and connected to the Roman government world. So whatever Gallio says here, is, it's likely going to spread to the other parts of the Roman Empire and well, I mean, it's a big deal. I mean, the Christian faith here could get totally squashed. I mean, well, maybe not, but the Roman government can outlaw it. They can completely ban the Christian religion. If Gallio here decides that this Christian faith needs to be stopped, well, it can be. God, what are you doing? You follow the mob. God, what are you doing? As mobs happen, it continue to grow. We finally got to the portico of Gallio. I mean, the mob was three times the size that it originally started. I mean, there was so many people in this building that you could hardly get in. And you could finally peek your head in and see what was going on up front. This is where the Jewish people were launching their attack against Paul. And they, they were up there. There's four or five of them who seemed extremely angry. And next to those four or five was this guy named Sosthenes. And you saw Sosthenes before you knew him. I mean, he's been around. He's someone in the town. You see him and you know him. And he's, he's a nice guy. You like him. And Well, he's a guy that took over for Crispus. You know, when Crispus believed and became a Christian, I mean, he was the guy who came up next. And, well, he was helping run the synagogue now. He was the next ruler. And uh, you know, you know, you thought that probably Sosthenes had something to do with everything that was here, and you saw him as part of the attack. The guys next to Gallio, or next to Sosthenes, launched this uh, attack to Gallio, and they were trying to persuade Gallio that really this faith that Paul was teaching, this faith that the Christians believed was so much different and so radical that was indeed harmful to the Roman government. I mean, Paul's proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord meant that Caesar is not Lord. As James was talking about earlier, this is the complete reordering and priorities of the kingdoms. I mean, if these Christians really believe this, then their true king is now Jesus Christ who rules over all, who governs all their actions and their whole lives. I mean, the implications of the Christian gospel is huge and radical, and the Jewish people were seeing this, and they were trying to convince Gallio this. They were trying to persuade of Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One, and how this changes everything. So they launch their attack and give the ten-minute spiel, and Paul stands to speak in response. I mean, he wanted to defend himself, but before he could say a word, you see the hand of Gallio go up and calm him down. Before Paul could say a word, Gallio said, it sounds like a matter that just belongs to you. It's a matter of your own faith. It's not this real united attack, as you say. I mean, it sounds like something that just belongs to you. 
a sigh of relief comes over you of the freedom that you now see for what would be the next 10 years. The Christian faith has this protection in the area that they can go on and have some autonomy within the Roman Empire. They can continue to preach. Paul can continue his mission just as the Lord has promised he will continue to preach and you still have the expectation, though, what is God doing here? Are there some among this crowd that God would have that belong to him? Still, the vision is in your mind as the tension continues to grow. And as what happens with mob, the anger and the frustration is built up and needs to explode and go somewhere. And so you don't really know why, but it, it went to Sosthenes. That guy, Sosthenes, that you know, I mean, he got, he got beat to a pulp that day. He got beat so hard, he, he looked like what Paul looked like coming out of Lystra. Brothers and sisters, this is where the story ends. In the book of Acts, as Luke tells it. Sosthenes, lying on the ground, beat to a pulp. And we don't know for certain, but I imagine that this is Sosthenes' conversion. This is what led to Sosthenes believing in the Lord as the rest of the Jewish people left him there, as they too were angry that Paul and Crispus and Gaius and some of the others in the church took care of him. They said, hey, we, we know what this is like. They took him back to Gaius' house and they cleaned his wounds and continued to share with him the love of Jesus. I don't know for certain if it happened that way, but I imagine this is there where Sosthenes and Paul started to have a good friendship. And that Sosthenes was convinced of what Paul was teaching, that Sosthenes also placed his faith in Jesus, and over the years, Sosthenes wanted to go with Paul on his missionary journeys. We don't know exactly how it happened, but as I said, Sosthenes ended up with Paul, and well, he wrote a letter back to the church that Sosthenes cared for. He wrote a letter back to the Corinthian church to help shape it. One of the most fascinating letters of the whole New Testament. This guy, Sosthenes, he appears twice, but his influence is remarkable. I'm going to invite Amanda to come back up wherever she is. And we're going to close in worship in a minute here. But I shared this story with you, and I wanted to kind of just extrapolate it for three reasons. First, I hope to provide a sense of life to the scriptures. This is how the scriptures were written. It's in a different narrative style than what we're used to. Scriptures take time to soak in. There's so much depth and beauty and complexity to these verses that we just read here. Hope to provide a newfound excitement to explore and understand all that God has for us in diving into the text. The second reason I want to share this story with you is to show you an example of faith. I mean, this was faith in action, trusting in the promises of God when things are not looking good. And we, this summer, we're looking at those unheralded heroes of the faith, and I think this was a prime example of that, of those who were trusting in the promise of God. 
Now, although Paul was being attacked, that there was still faith in the tension. And the last reason I wanted to share this story with you is that really the focal point of this story is on Jesus. It's Jesus Christ, it's the spirit of Jesus Christ who is working through the whole story, who's narrating the whole events. Who would have imagined that Crispus and Gaius would have believed? Who would imagine that any single one of us would have believed? It is the spirit of the living God who is working throughout all of human history and who is working in our own lives. And this is the point of the whole book of Acts is to show how the spirit of God is moving and working. So I hope that we take that for ourselves. The story of the River Church is not the story of us. It's not the story of Todd or Denise or James or Bill or myself or anyone. It's the story about how the living God has been working in each and every single one of us to bring about his kingdom. And what an amazing God we worship. Let me pray and then Amanda will take it off. Father, we um, thank you. Thank you that you are the God who loves us, who cares for us. Thank you that you are the God who has provided the scriptures that we may learn about you, learn about how you move in the wor world and what it means to have faith in you. We ask that you would enliven them for us as we continue to study them throughout our lives. And would our faith in you continue to grow deeper and deeper? For we ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen. Just again, want to invite you to stand as we finish our service with worship. You unravel me with a melody. You surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemies till all my fears are gone and I'm no longer I'm no longer a slave to fear I am a child of God I'm no longer I'm no longer a slave to fear I am a child of God. Let's sing this together from my mother's womb. From my mother's womb, you have chosen me. Your love has called my name. I've been born, I've been born again into your family of blood. Your blood flows through my veins and I'm no longer, I'm no longer a slave to fear I am. I am a child of God, I'm no longer, I'm no longer a slave to fear I'm a child, I am a child of God oh we believe it this morning we will not fear with you Jesus let's sing this melody together oh, 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 oh. 
could stand and sing. I am a child of God. Let's sing it again together. You split the sea. You split the sea so I could walk right through it. My fears were drowning perfect love. You rescued me so I could stand and sing. I am a child of God. I am. Let's sing it together. I am a child of God. One last time. Yes, I am a child of God. And I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I'm no longer. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. Sing, you split the sea one last time. You split the sea so I could walk right through it. My fears were drowned in perfect love. You rescue me. You rescue me so I could stand and sing. I am a child of God. Thank you, Lord. That is our promise. We are fully known and fully seen by the maker of the heavens. Such wonderful knowledge that this is, Lord that you don't sit in a high and lofty place, Lord, but you come down with us. So let that lead us in this next week, Lord. Let it lead us, the knowledge that we are no longer slaves to fear, that you speak to us, that you're with us, and we thank you for that, Lord. Let's go ahead and end on this song, Our Father. And our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom, your kingdom come quickly, your will be done the same on earth, on earth. As it is in heaven, let heaven come to earth. As it is in heaven, let heaven come. Let's sing this together with one voice, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, hallowed be your name, your kingdom, your kingdom come quickly with your will be done the same on earth, on earth as it 
heaven come to earth as it is in heaven let heaven come let heaven come let heaven Let heaven come. Sing, yours is the kingdom. Because yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever. Amen. And yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. Sing it one more time. Because yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the glory forever. Amen. And on earth as it is in heaven, let heaven come to earth as it is in heaven let heaven come so lord we do pray that this morning that you are the ultimate authority and king of our lives jesus we pray your kingdom come your will be done you teach us how to pray in the New Testament, Lord. And so we make that our prayer this morning. On earth as it is in heaven, let your will be done. Today and every day in this community, in our hearts, and our lives, Lord, we thank you for your leadership, for your goodness, for your nearness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, everyone. Well, 4th of July. Happy 4th of July. Hope you guys stick around and say hi to everyone and just enjoy your day. We bless you. And if you go to the Norris, remember to go to Malaga Cove next week, not the Norris. All right, see you guys next week.